Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. The long-awaited return of Cody Lakefold for part two of our discussion has arrived. And while it's not entirely necessary to listen to our first podcast, which is episode one, it would be very helpful if you're going to listen to this episode, to listen to that episode, to follow the thread. In part two, Cody discusses his journey towards overcoming the tragic losses he's experienced in his life and also shares the various treatment modalities he pursued, including psychotherapy, EMDR, and then lastly, MDMA with augmented psychotherapy, an approach that I think it's safe to say helped give Cody his life back. We also talked about the state of well-being in our society today, notions such as anti-fragility, the over-medicalization of mental illness, and other suboptimal wellness pathways our society is trending towards. Please note, none of this should be taken as medical advice. And lastly, brace yourself for some new Confronting the Madness intro music. It's about to hit you like a Rob Lovelace, Google it, punch to the solar plexus. Here we go. Cody, welcome back uh, to Confronting the Madness for, for part two of our conversation. Part one, obviously, was quite a deep dive into to your story. And again, I thank you for sharing it. Um, today, I want to talk a little bit more generally about some of the conversations we've had around the notions of resilience, anti-fragility, um, our society today, and maybe a way forward for people um, to try to combat some of the narratives that are out there in society around how sick we are as human beings. But before we do that, just wanted to get some feedback, your thoughts on reflecting on, on our, our first podcast, uh, some of the feedback you had and good, bad, or indifferent and how that experience was for you. Uh, well, you know what? It, it is always... It's always an honor to be able to tell the story. Um, you know, there's catharsis that comes for me uh, when I get to tell it. And, you know, that I get to talk about it with you makes it significantly easier because, you know, you and I went through a lot of this together. Uh, so, you know, a lot of this and obviously our friendship helps, you know, to be able to have these kinds of conversations. But uh, but I I enjoy it. You know, it's it's been uh been a lovely thing and the feedback that I've gotten from people um some I know and some I don't has been <laughs> really lovely yeah uh, people are people are astonishing you know and it's easy to kind of forget that in a world whereby we're we're forced into isolation and to not communicate with one another and see each other that much but uh man alive yeah no it has been uh, it's been wonderful people have been for the most part it's truly beautiful about the whole experience, very understanding and very sympathetic and empathetic. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been great. Yeah. And I've also received a lot, a lot of feedback about the, the 
conversation you and I had. And, you know, I think part of it was, you know, it, it's, it's, such a, it's such a tragic story in some ways, but there's also um, some, uh, I'm loath to say beauty and humor or fun. Beauty? No, I'm just kidding. You sick bastard. <laughs> there's some deep, deep beauty that I found in that story. There's some, there's, there's something, you know, I think beautiful about two people being able to you just genuinely talk about something so tragic in a way that isn't uh, isn't completely downtrodden and sorrowful. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that resonated with a lot of people and, and to be able to add, like you said in the podcast and it was in reference to your dad and something that I think he bestowed to you is that uh, to find humor or levity in life is something that's very foundational good, bad, or, or, or terrible. And so, you know, even though it was a very serious conversation, um, there, there was, some, there was some levity, levity in it as well. And so, um, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there has to be though, right. I mean, you and I have talked about this on a number of occasions, but if, uh, if you ever find me in a space where I find nothing funny about, you know, the circumstances, then you know that I've got a problem. <laughs> like that's that's going to be problematic for me and usually i have a you know this about me i have a horribly dark sense of humor to begin yeah. with but uh but it has served me exceedingly well because you need I, at the end of the day there's always going to be this world can be hilarious even in its most tragic moments mm -hmm. i mean it there is the insanity of it all there still should be an ability to look at it and yeah and laugh at it as well as mourn it and grieve it yeah and i think a lot of it speaks to to some degree perspective and i think you know perspective if we can shift gears a little bit is something that you and i've talked about a lot perspective as it pertains um to your story but more generally perspective as it pertains to the world today and you know during the first episode when we talked about your PTSD diagnosis, you know, mm. without, without question, um, I, in my mind, you know, yet you were the prime candidate for somebody who genuinely would have post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, oh, thanks. I love it when you send compliments my way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I really, try. I mean, I tried. I tried yeah. really hard. Yes. Like I said, you, the tears dripping on the uh, questionnaire were the telltale sign that yeah yeah um, you're a <laughs> but but one of the things that i think concerns both you and i are um things like ptsd and, and trauma and anxiety um are are being confused today with distress and normal biological functions and hardship we, yeah that we as humans are yeah are predisposed to have and are actually healthy for us and so you know how, yeah. how, how do you think about that as someone who i think generally would be traumatized by your experience to see you know some people saying they're traumatized by uh something that they saw on television for example bad day at work yeah 
Well, we have a culture now um, that, that it, and you know, these are personal opinions, obviously, but uh, there seems to be a culture that is hell bent on speaking hyperbolically about pretty much every facet of their lives. And so, you know, this becomes a, a bit of a problem. This has been going on for a long time, mind you. I mean, it used to get under my skin when people would talk about how um, they were feeling depressed after, you know, a tough day at work or, you know, a tough argument with somebody um, when they probably meant they were feeling sad, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there is a pretty wide gap between mm-hmm. depression and sadness. And, and sadness is a very, very helpful emotion, right? And it's a very healthy emotion. And so when we take these things and then, and then bring in, you know, DSM level definitions about normal everyday emotional events, it tends to steer us in relatively strange directions these days. And so, you know, at the same time that kind of nobody's a victim, everybody's also a victim and everybody's a victim and nobody's a victim, right? Because now we all suffer depression and anxiety disorder and PTSD. And we throw around really, really big terms for uh, events and circumstances and emotions that don't deserve them. And so we're kind of, it seems to me, we're training ourselves to be sick when we're not sick. Yeah. We're just living. So I I just, as I told you offline, I just finished interviewing Dr. Alan Francis, who uh, was the chair of the DSM-4 course. And one of his main objectives was to ensure through uh, his stewardship of the task force was that they did not uh, inflate diagnoses because he understood the deep ramifications that they had uh, as a result. And so three diagnoses so there were there were 92 diagnoses disorders submitted for his review to be added into the dsm-4 he accepted four of them one was adhd one was bipolar disorder two one was asperger's yeah so what he saw happen and he didn't expect this was as soon as a disorder is included in the dsm yeah adhd was in there was an increase of 40 times the amount of kids that had ADHD and 40 times yes and so the drug companies and um, even psychiatrists are just predisposed to then diagnose something that just the day before wasn't even a diagnosis and so it's just a hyper kid yeah and so I think you know to to your point we're medicalizing normal more and more yeah. So much so that I think 20% of uh, people in North America are on some form, form of SSRI right now. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Needed. And so yeah. I'm, w- I'm wondering how you thought through, um, you know, your PTSD treatment plan or path and, and what people had suggested to you at the time uh, and how you internalized that. Well, people, again, going back to um, the, the community that I surrounded myself with at the time uh, and still do, I mean, they, you want to talk about certain components of resiliency or, or this notion of anti-fragility and, and what makes that up for me. Um, the reason why I was, was resilient um, as it concerns all the events that have transpired in my life 
but first and foremost was because of the people that surrounded me. Um, you know, they having friends, family, brothers, sisters, uh, your parents, whatever. For me, I was surrounded by friends who were who were family before to me, um, but became that much closer during the entire thing. I mean, you know, I, friends that would just walk with me and, uh, you know, and, and I, I was given after PTSD, I was kind of given a prescription of certain things that I needed to start doing in terms of activities during the day. And, and first and foremost, they told me to take three months off. So I did that. Uh, and then I was told that I should do EMDR therapy. Um, because that, as it stands right now, is kind of the most effective treatment modality for PTSD. And, and explain what exactly that entails for. EMDR is, is a different kind of treatment, and it's kind of the utilization of visual cues paired with um, talking therapy um, that surrounds a very strong focus on each individual trauma so that you begin to um, kind of desensitize yourself to that trauma so that you can begin to go on living your life so that it shuts down your fight or flight response so that you, you don't have that kind of pent up fight or flight. And then, uh, and then, yeah, you can start healing your brain from there. And did you, it is did you do it? arduous. Well, we began down that path. Um, MDR is tricky. You have to find the right therapist to conduct it. Um, because it is talk therapy, I mean, it, you might find great progress within six months. You might find it in 12, 18. It depends on the individual. It's a complicated process, right? Because it depends on the individual, um, just how cute the PTSD is. Um, and, and depends hugely on the therapist as well. And so all of these things, it's, it can be a little hit or miss. And again, it is very uncomfortable, uh, form of treatment. Of course it is, you know, you're focusing on things that um, have disrupted your brain in a way that is pretty significant. So focusing on each individual trauma is, uh, is a challenge. It's not, it's not comfortable therapy, but it's not really meant to be comfortable. Right. Um, you know, we're meant to get through it. So that was what was put forth. Um, I had to, I had to take those three months off. I wasn't allowed to travel. That wasn't the purpose to this. I was um, meant to stay home and become accustomed to living in my own skin again. And so I was told that I could not spend any time with um, individuals who were more business acquaintance than, than close friends. The idea was to spend time only in the company of very, very close friends. Um, people that would lessen my anxiety levels, not increase them. Mm -hmm. um, so I started doing that. I did that, hung out with friends. I would go for walks. I wasn't allowed to listen to audiobooks on the walks. I had to go for two, three hour walks um, once a day. And, uh, and the intention was to listen to the sound of my footsteps. I had begun to try to learn meditation. But meditation for me, especially in that state, was extraordinarily difficult. And so um, we did this walking meditation where it was, you know what, you're just going to go out in nature. You'll surround yourself in the river valley. I live down by the river valley. Um, so, you know, beneficially for me, I could leave my house, get into the ravine and go for long walks. And uh, those were initially extraordinarily uncomfortable <laughs> because I'm left with nothing but my own mind. Mm -hmm. And at the time, my mind was my number one enemy. 
Mm -hmm. um, did it, and then did it move over time as you did it. More I still, oh, I still remember the day that I went for a walk and dropped Adela off my daughter at the bus stop, and uh, and descended into the ravine after she got on the bus, and it was raining. It was. Uh, it was cool outside, but I was, I was well-dressed and I went for a good two hour walk and came back feeling like a new man. Like it was, it was wonderful. Um, that feeling lasted for only a, <laughs> a couple hours, but the idea is to, right, keep doing this over and over again until things start to normalize a little bit. But still, um, the space in my head was exceedingly dark and, uh, and, and yeah, it was, it was troublesome. I mean, trying to get through it, trying to get rid of the, the visions, the nightmares, especially I struggled with. Um, and then just a complete lack of focus on everything. So trying to get anything productive done was, was exceedingly difficult. So, I'm, <laughs> so there is a number of components that make up the resiliency aspect of things. And thankfully I had a good therapist um, really good therapist, Roger Thiessen, who's just an awesome guy. I talked about him a little bit. Yeah. Um, and having a coach for your mind is, is such a crucial thing. And, and thankfully he guided me through all of that. And the other thing that he said was to ensure that I kept up my fitness. So make sure that I'm going to the gym. And at that time I had nothing else to do. So I was going to the gym every day and I've had the same fitness coach, Curtis Bills, uh, at a place called Body Infusion on the North End, who has just, he's been my coach for, for over a decade and just a wonderful human being. In fact, when my father passed away, I did what a lot of people do. And I just buried myself in work and, uh, and stopped going to the gym. And after, after about a month, I get a phone call um, <laughs> while I'm in my office and it's Kurt. And he's telling me that, uh, you know, he knows what happened and, uh, you know, he's got a lot of heart for it. And uh, he wanted to pass along his, his, um, his warmth and his love. And, uh, and then he ended the conversation with, okay, so I'll see you at noon. I said, nope, I'm busy. I'm, you know, I, I lost my business partner, right? So I've got twice or if not three times the workload and I just don't have time. They say, yeah, okay, well, then you've got two options. Either you're going to come to the gym at noon or I'm going to come to your office at noon. All right, I said, I'll see you at the gym. Yeah. yeah. Good for him. Yeah. This guy, he knew exactly what I needed. He knew how important that brain body link is and it is exceedingly important. Mm -hmm. And so maintaining that kind of the physical regimen of things was, was incredibly crucial during all of it. Because if I had given that up, I mean, you know, it, it would have been that much more exhausting to try to deal with everything. So maintaining, you know, my body in a certain uh, fashion so that, you know, my brain could try to heal from all of it and, yeah. and recover uh, was definitely, for me, extraordinarily important. And so, you know, I had that. I had the, I had the friendships in the community that were holding me up. And then, I, you know, I had my my mind coach, which was, you know, I hugely recommend finding a mind coach, find a life coach, a therapist, a counselor, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, but 
the person has to really resonate with you, mm-hmm. you know? And so be picky, be choosy on that side of the equation. And thankfully Roger is always, I mean, he's, it's like talking with an old friend. I trust him. So it's nice to be able to throw all of these things in the air and have somebody help you sort through them. So we did that, you know, and then I had my, my body coach, which was, which was wonderful. And fitness became um, even that much more important to me because it was, it was, a focus on the brain as much as it was a focus on the body, you know, and then, uh, and as we're going through all this and I'm still, you know, still struggling, um, to come to terms with everything. And I had been told on a number of occasions, I was, I remember I was on a, I was on a trip to New York and, uh, I was sitting in a bar with an acquaintance whom I didn't really know but really liked, like I would spent a little bit of time with this individual and very talented man, very successful man, um, exceedingly bright man. And we're sitting in New York <laughs> and uh, he's telling me about his life. And then this was about uh, probably three, four months after I lost Jesse, I'm telling him about my life and uh, <laughs> He goes, oh, my God, you know, like, I've had quite a couple of years here. Yeah. He goes, so post-traumatic stress disorder, huh? And I, and, and I kind of hate that kind of shit right. because I, I, you know, we love to throw diagnoses out there now. Like, everybody seems to be a psychologist. Everybody's a psychiatrist. Everybody kind of knows you know, we know the terminology without really understanding definitions. And so when I hear stuff like that, I always get defensive. Yeah. So I said, no, no, I don't, uh, probably not, you know, but, uh, but grieving and, and struggling and it's, you know, it's not easy, but uh, I'll get through it. <laughs> and this guy, he goes, uh, he goes, Cody, have you ever taken acid? <laughs> what? <laughs> Like you want to do acid right now? Oh, yeah. We're gonna. So I said no. Weird segue. You have to understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you thought at the time. Well, I just I thought, what a strange thing to say, um, considering the conversation. But also, like my mom was a severe drug addict, right? Like you know, oxy and, and SSRIs and and all that stuff. And so for me. I had zero interest in getting into any kind of drugs. I mean, I barely smoked a joint when I was a kid. Um, you know, granted, I was probably seven or eight beers deep at the time. So let's exclude alcohol from that equation. But uh, <laughs> yeah. And he goes, yeah, no, he goes, what you should do is you should find a couple tabs of acid and go ahead and stick that in your mouth. Well, no, because I don't. I want to deal with the issue. I don't want to just start taking illegal drugs to, you know, try to numb myself. He goes, numb yourself. Like, oh, you clearly, you've never done acid. No, I haven't done acid. Three months later, I'm back in Edmonton and I'm sitting down with a, 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 a psychiatrist who is an unbelievably successful talented uh like the guy's cv it was astonishing i'm sitting at a a restaurant here in town 
you were there for a little part of this conversation and then you left. Mm -hmm. But we were sitting having dinner and uh, this beautiful human being whom I hope to reconnect with here soon. But he said the same thing. And now this is coming from a psychiatrist. Now, obviously we'll keep his name under wraps, but <laughs> it's, it was this, again, it was a strange suggestion from somebody who I looked at and was like, well, you're not a, you're not a drug addict. Right. You know, and you're a professional within this community. And so he explained certain components of, of LSD. It's like, okay, well, still no, but, but thanks. Yeah. It, it's like for me, uh, you know how I choose a Netflix show? It's like if one person recommends it, I'm meh. Second yeah. person, meh. Third person, I'm watching the show. So I want exactly. to know your third Netflix LSD recommender. Well, so the third guy, I get, because uh, you're right. This stuff comes in threes for me too. I need a lot of pushing. Yes. Especially well, especially, in this realm. Well, especially just for those that don't know, you weren't privy or familiar with any of the no. research or activities no. that have been underway back in the 60s or even the reemergent around psychedelic. Medicine. No, I knew nothing about Hoffman yeah. or Tim yeah. Leary or, or any of that story. And so, you know, in the 50s or 60s, obviously LSD and MDMA and uh, psilocybin were being used broadly. Um, to treat certain components of psychiatric disorders. And also um, in terms of just therapeutic counseling, they were using MDMA for couples counseling, yeah. which was fascinating. But I didn't know any of this stuff. Yeah. I didn't know the background of psychedelics at all. So after I had uh, received my second recommendation, I ignored it completely. And then uh, a couple years later, obviously my mom passed away. And then I get diagnosed with PTSD. So now I have to go and tell everybody that I'm stepping away from board positions and my company um, so that I can just focus on trying to heal this. And I end up sitting with a great friend of mine and he runs upstairs and he grabs a book when I tell him that I have to, to uh, step away from certain responsibilities. He goes, hang on a second, goes upstairs, grabs a book, comes downstairs, puts it on the table. And it's um, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. How to Change Your Mind, yeah. And uh, I've recommended that book to a billion people at this point. Mm -hmm. I spent, after that book was given to me, I spent the next four days reading it. And it's a bit of a beast. You've read it. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bigger book. It is a beautifully written book. It's Michael Pollan. So the boy knows how to write. Do you want me to do a quick synopsis or do you want to share? No, which, yeah, why don't you do that? Because that would be good, yeah. Yeah, so How to Change Your Mind, Michael Pollan, who's a New York Times bestselling author who spent most of his career focusing on health, mostly in the food industry. Uh, agriculture, yeah. Agriculture. He wrote a book intending on doing a history of psychedelics um, and its use in medical applications. Halfway through the book, he decided, because he had never experienced psychedelics himself, so it's a two-part book, really. The first half is around the history of psychedelic research and the applications towards things like uh, mental illness, PTSD, anxiety, depression, end of life, end of life um, suffering. But then the second half of the book, <laughs> Michael Pollan goes on his own journey of 
he said, well, if I'm going to write this book, I'm going to actually go and try right. all these um, psychedelic medicines himself. And so he- And he never had before. I mean, this guy never, is 60 never, years old. Yeah, yeah. So it's a fascinating book on, from a historical, yeah. contextual, and then also personal journey. So, yeah. Yeah, it gives you a good idea of the history of it and the, and the politics that have surrounded it and plagued it for quite some time. You know, those damn hippies, they got their hands on the LSD and they just ruined it for all of us. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Nixon stepped in and, uh, and then Reagan with the war on drugs. And so psychedelics were lumped in with a bunch of Schedule One drugs, which are considered the most dangerous drugs on the planet, uh, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I'm reading this book. And Paulin um, mentions... Um, a drug called MDMA, and that there has been a lot of research into the utility of MDMA specific to individuals who are dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, other psychedelics like, um, like psilocybin or, or LSD or DMT, none of them seem to have as profound an impact as MDMA. And some of the evidence uh, that's being suggested is that it's kind of a one and done experience. Um, you take it, you go through talking therapy while you're on it. You spend the next few hours in integration in terms of what you learned um, and how you can integrate that in your life. And then you go with it. And the efficacy rates that have come out with um, MDMA in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder was like the numbers are astonishing. But remember, EMDR is very hit or miss. It's talking and, therapy. It's going to be like that. And the, dura the duration to get exactly. to, the point to, to the finish line is quite, quite long. You just don't, yeah, and you don't really know, right? You, you're never going to really know until it's, it's over. So, you know, a lot of people who are, who are dealing with PTSD, and especially when you look at, military application for something like this for you know our boys and girls who have to go and fight for our countries and uh you know their brains get pretty horribly beaten up out there and then they come home and they're supposed to just integrate back into society <laughs> how do you do that you know and then what we offer them is is talk therapy that may or may not work um we hope that it does and it's going to take quite some time mm -hmm. now that's just kind of not good enough mm -hmm. MDMA is proving to be really interesting and supremely effective. So problem with MDMA is that uh, it is one half of the drug ecstasy. And so obviously it is illegal. Um, and its utility is, I mean, it, MDMA in terms of the risks involved, interestingly, like a lot of psychedelics, the risks are pretty small. Again, None of this stuff is to be taken ever without responsibility and accountability and hopefully regulation. You know, the way this landscape is moving, hopefully we'll get regulators in who can actually start building this out in a way that in terms of a practice that is most beneficial. But as it stands right now, you know, this is illegal drugs. So for me, again, you know, now I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe this is something that I should do because I hate living in my head right now um, it's a painful painful thing and it's a horrible space to be in and so had a couple conversations with some uh some friends of mine 
and they were able to uh, to get me a 180 milligram capsule of MDMA. And so I agreed to do talk therapy with a close friend of mine, let's call him Bob. And Bob and I um, spent an afternoon doing it, taking it. And the experience is, is, is relatively ineffable. So it's hard to put into words exactly what it was like. But up until that moment, again, lots of visions, horrible visions, terrible nightmares, blurred thought patterns, always on edge, um, and desperately, desperately, uh, incredibly unhappy. And using, al using alcohol as a... A crutch. Yeah. Just something that, using that horrible drug as a way to just shut my brain off so I can go to sleep. Yeah, it was a self-medicating... Uh... Yeah, cool. self-medicating with, yeah, with alcohol. And, uh, and it was just, yeah. I mean, it was the only way that I could fall asleep was, you know, take a tumbler of bourbon with me and, and drink it. So I go over to Bob's place and, and we sit down and he has taken it before. He was familiar with it. And so we talked about what it looks like, what the experience is like. Um, so I knew what to expect. Uh, he gave me the the capsule and uh, we took um, some 5-HTP and, and a couple other supplements to go along with it because it, it has pretty profound effects on your serotonin. Uh, so took everything and went outside and walked along the bike path through the river valley. And after about an hour, Bob turns to me and he goes, so how are you feeling? And at this point, you know, I'm so eager to just get out of my fucking brain that I'm and now I'm disappointed because I'm 60 minutes in and I turned to Bob and I'm like, listen, man, like this is, I feel nothing. Mm. It was all right. Well, give it a little time. I said, okay, but this feels like a bust, you know, and now I'm getting disappointed. Right. <laughs> and 10 minutes later, he looks at me and goes, and how are we feeling now? I'm like, I feel a little, a little floaty, feel light as a feather. Um, I don't feel high. I don't feel stoned. I just feel better. My mood is elevating. He was okay. Well, why don't we go and sit on a park bench and have a talk? And so we sat on this park bench looking at this, uh, this field in front of us that was uh, outside of this condo unit. And we started talking about my childhood. And we, and as we're talking, colors are getting brighter and my sense of smell is keener and my, my eyes are sharper and I'm, I'm, I, you can, I can hear better. Your senses are quite elevated on this stuff. And I'm also very, very cognizant, very aware of myself all of a sudden. All of that mist and all that haze that was floating around in my head that was keeping me from being able to, to make decisions and understand what's been happening over the past while in terms of my own relationships, all the deaths, everything. All of a sudden, it becomes a lot more clear. 
and logical. I become so much more, um, I'm less subjective. Mm. I'm, I'm critical, but not in a judgmental fashion. I'm doing this personal inventory of my life. And I'm sitting there and, and Bob is asking some questions, but he knows what he's doing here. And he's checked through cl clinical protocol of what this looks like already. And he knows that his purpose is only to ask questions that'll keep the conversation focused on its intention, mm -hmm. which is let's talk about all these deaths. And more specifically, let's talk about your place within them. Let's talk about your survivor's guilt. Let's talk about your self-hatred. Let's talk about all of it. So we did, we sat there and went through everything. And I, you know, one of my other concerns was that I was going to, uh, was gonna take this and I was going to lose control. Mm -hmm. um, but the very opposite is true. I, you are, I mean, I'll speak personally here, but it, my headspace was pristine. I was in total control the entire time. In fact, it was to the point where you're looking at this and going, okay, the PTSD, that, that's where my mind was out of control. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to see, I'm, I'm beginning to re-harness it. So we have this long, profound conversation. And, you know, and I'm not crying. I'm recollecting about the hard stuff, but I'm also remembering and beginning to remember all the good things, all my great memories with my family, mm. all the wonderful things that they did, what the, the incredible things that they did for the community, how much they loved the community of St. Albert um, and all that stuff. And so, and these things I had forgotten. Right. I mean, legitimately, they start flooding back. So I'm seeing the collective, I'm seeing the entirety of the landscape instead of just the darkness. And so lights start coming on and I start feeling better. And we talk more and more and, I, and I'm, you're very comfortable in this space because you know, your, your blood is flush with serotonin. So, you know, you are, you're not giddy, um, but you're very comfortable and you feel very connected. I mean, doing that experience with somebody whom you know and trust only serves to bond you closer to them. Mm -hmm. And when you're in that state to me, you know, you, you are connected to not just him, but everyone. I mean, your sense of empathy goes through the roof. I mean, there's a few political leaders who we should shove a bunch of MDMA into their mouths because I think that'd probably do this world a lot of good, but um, yeah. that's beyond the point. There Anyways. Are, sorry, as a side note, there are studies yeah. taking place on just that in the Middle East, but we can talk about that later. Yes. Really? Yes, that, yeah. that's, it's, it's actually unbelievable. It's an unbelievable study. Well, I'll tell you, I, I did as much research on this stuff as I possibly could. Um, I knew the risks that were involved. I also, you know, I, I got somebody whom I trusted who had experience with it. So I did everything that I could do in terms of risk mitigation. Um, you know, and I have talked about you using this drug uh, that afternoon. Uh, to try and resolve my PTSD. And the effects of it were pretty profound. And as you well know, but I, after that day, I never had another vision 
I never had another nightmare. Not a single one. I went home that evening and slept for the first time in years. And I mean, I slept. And typically on, uh, on MDMA, usually people find it difficult to sleep afterwards. Man, I was out. Hmm. I slept for 10 hours and like sleep, sleep. Also, what's, what was interesting to me was that I, I had gotten home from, um, from my, let's call it my session, about six hours later. Mm-hmm. And I have dinner and I snuggle my daughter and I get her into bed and, um, and I go into the basement like I always did, you know, mm-hmm. and I, prior to that, I pour myself a bourbon and I go into the basement. Of course I have it. It's what I do. Now it's time to, now it's nighttime. Now it's time to have bourbon. Your brain's ready for the bourbon. Yeah. Well, yeah, kind of. The thing is, I, I'm sitting there with my laptop because some of, the, some of the events that I had gone through, I'm still trying to fully understand. And so now I'm doing more research about other experiences with, um, with MDMA. And I'm looking at the bourbon and I'm thinking, man, you know, I just love bourbon. Like, bourbon is such a lovely drink. And it's got, sometimes it's got that caramelly aftertone to it. And it's just a lovely thing. I'm looking at it and like, and it's also so pretty. Like when you pour it into a glass, it's just, it glows golden. What a beautiful drink. And then I go back to researching like an hour. And then I'd look at my bourbon and be like, ah, my old friend bourbon, look at her. And she's sitting there and she looks delicious. And I can't wait, can't wait to drink her. But I don't need it right now. And so I go back to reading. And after a while it dawns on me, I have zero interest in drinking yeah yeah like none which was really strange because prior to that i needed the drink to shut my brain up yeah totally it's and all of a sudden some wiring in your brain chemistry yeah and it it wasn't like i was looking at the the drinking going yeah i sure hate i sure hate alcohol i'm looking at him going i i remember all the beautiful things about a good bourbon Mm -hmm. And I still, and I still love it, but I don't want to drink it before bed because I want to go to bed. And so, you know, after doing some more reading, closed up the laptop, went to bed, slept for 10 hours and, uh, you know, and continuing to supplement with, with, uh, five HTP. Um, but woke up the next day feeling normal for the first time since I can honestly remember. Wow. The stickiness of this in that kind of state, you know, again, I'm a big believer in the legalization of this stuff now, mm-hmm. a huge believer in it mm-hmm. and uh, an advocate for it. Um, but in a clinical set, it, it needs to have clinical regulation. We need people to be as safe as humanly possible because Hey, psychedelics are pretty safe at the end of the day when you're looking at, um, you know, the risk factors that surround psychedelics versus some some psychopharmaceuticals that are being used right now, like SSRIs. I mean, they're they're relatively safe. That doesn't mean you can't destroy yourself with them. Mm -hmm. And so people need guidance and we need governing bodies who can actually be the ones who 
who take care of us in, in terms of this kind of thing. But it is an astonishing experience to, in that state of mind, you do behave and act as your own therapist. Um, you're doing the work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it's amazing how, because st- all the revelations that we came to, at the end of the day, finally after four hours of, of this trip, I deduced myself that actually I was a pretty good person, mm-hmm. you know, that I had been a, a good son, that I had tried my best to be my parents' caretakers, uh, and certainly my brother's caretaker, and that I loved them all desperately and, and missed them a lot uh, and miss them every day. And all of these things are okay, right. you know, but I don't have to carry them with me for the, the rest guilt, of my life. The guilt you had on your back was lifted. Oh, and I mean, I like hated myself, okay. truly, you truly hated run. myself. Yeah, because I remember well, in the first episode how you're Mr. Fix-It and then right. things aren't fixed, it's all your right. fault in your mind. I had not. failed, yeah, I had failed them miserably, all of them. Mm-hmm. And these are the people that I loved most in the world. You know, and so that was my perspective and coming out of it, you know, looking back on it and, and all the all the effort that I put forth and the love and the compassion. And, you know, of course, I, I fuck things up here and there. I'm certainly <laughs> certainly not perfect. Well, that goes with absolutely without saying. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know me well enough. Yeah. Inevitably, I'm going to fuck something up. But at the end of the day. I, I did my absolute best and supported them as best as I could and, and loved them, and most importantly. Mm-hmm. And they loved me. And I, so I, I was left at the end of that day with just a deep, deep sense of gratitude for having the family that I did. Wow, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, and it was okay to miss them. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't my fault that they passed. And because I came to that realization, because it didn't come from somebody sitting there going, you're a good person, you did right. everything you could, yeah. which I had, right? Like I had friends who were doing that. That's what everybody would say. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't believe them. Exactly. Of course I didn't believe them, right? But I do a lot of head nodding. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I get that. Thank you very much for saying it. But at the same time, you don't, it doesn't actually resonate. Mm-hmm. You know, when you arrive at that conclusion yourself, that's a belief now. Yes. And that's the thing about, this the the potentials for psychedelics is i remember michael pollan had described it like a fresh snow right that your mind is a landscape covered in snow and you have toboggans that run through it these are your neural pathways and so when you create these grooves in the snow other toboggans have a tendency they're more likely to run through the grooves than create new pathways through the snow right yeah but psychedelics can be like fresh fallen snow, that it can help to erase certain narrative loops that you've built up in your head yeah. that are self-destructive. And it gives you this opportunity then to go, okay, I can create new behaviors and I can create a new m- mental mindset. And it's, it's in my control. I can actually do this myself. Um, because I, there's a tool out there that allows you to take your ego and put it aside mm-hmm. because it's our egos have a tendency to get in the way. Yes. And so now, you know, I, I'm really, really hoping that, um, you know, that, that experience was so profound. Uh, and I'm a big believer in, um, you know, 
the regulation of such things that can have such beneficial societal impact. Because going back to what we were talking about earlier, my God, we've got, it seems like this national, if not international uh, mental mindset of aren't all of us horribly sick. I heard this story today about this young kid, 25 years old, who was on a Tinder date with a gal. <laughs> and he goes on this date, meets this girl for the first time. And she's beautiful and he's a handsome kid. They sit down and, and he feels like things are going good for the first 30, 35 minutes. And finally, she turns to him and asks him, so what disorders do you have? Are you serious? Yeah. And the boy, I mean, I guess he's not boy, he's a 25 year old man, but yeah. the man goes, pardon? I don't think I, I don't think I, I don't think I have any, unless you're telling me that I do. Right. Yeah. And she goes, no, no, she's just, you know, everybody has disorders and I'm just, I'm just curious what you have. Mm -hmm. Here are mine. And then she proceeds to list oh, her own self-diagnosed disorders. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, like if this is how we're identifying ourselves, if this is a, a component of our identity, that we're all horribly mentally ill. Mm -hmm. We've got a problem here. Uh, it's a, yeah, yeah. And I want to go back. Well, let me just put a pin in your story. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, the key takeaway for me is I really want a bourbon right now. Okay. No. Um, <laughs> what do you think I'm drinking? This is the clearest <laughs> bourbon you can find on the market because I wanted to trick you to make you think that it was uh, water, but. No, no, I'm shit so. so, so a couple of key takeaways I think that it's important to uh, note is that, you know, psychedelics, as you say, it, there's some ego dissolution there that allows you to get at underlying issues that uh, perhaps you're not as, as, as open to discussing. And so there, there's an important right. connectivity between uh, psychedelics and augmenting it with psychotherapy under a controlled setting. Um, and that's, that to me is going to be the future of, of mental health care. And so, to some degree, it certainly um, looks like it. Yes. Yes. And it's, it's moving at, at a speed, particularly on the for-profit side. I think there's been a billion dollars invested in private capital towards hundreds of companies and five then, and a half, five and a half billion, five and a half billion. So I'm making up numbers. I, I actually have to fact check myself about something I said earlier. I think I said 40 times. It might have been four times, but whatever. <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that out. And, we'll edit that out in post. But <laughs> question for you about the when you mentioned the stickiness. Um, so how long ago yeah. was it that you had this session, and then where 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 are you at today in terms of a regression or not to back to baseline that was that would have been uh coming up on uh two years almost two years ago that i did that, that session yeah wow. well yeah i mean you know mom passed away in uh in 2018 right so is it 2018 or 2019 i didn't say my memory came back but anyways yeah yeah it has been uh yeah it's been two years coming up this summer it'll have been two years and, and the stickiness of it, I still, I still haven't had a recurrence of any visions. I never had the, the nightmares come back. Um, you know, life is, is challenging sometimes and, yeah. you know, you're still going through change. And so I'm, I have days where I'm sad. Um, that's definitely true. I, 
thankfully, I have never truly experienced any kind of clinical depression. Uh, thank God for that. I'm very grateful for that. Um, I, I'm good. I, since that point, I went on to create Raven Lake. Um, you know, Raven Lake is doing well. I have a job that I, that I truly enjoy doing um, that is desperately stressful, especially these days. But your, my mindset on this stuff, um, I don't get overly stressed about much anymore. Right. Uh, and that's not because of the MDMA, I don't think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's just the entirety of all the experiences. There are bigger yeah. things to worry about. You have a perspective on life. Yeah, yeah. That few people would have. Yeah, but in terms of um, just how sticky it, it, it is or was for me, I mean, I'm still here, man. I'm still here. And my mindset hasn't changed much. I, you know, now, this is why you know, I look at somebody like um, my brother, who a ton of research has been done with psilocybin and addiction. Mm -hmm. And again, psilocybin is proving strangely effective as it concerns uh, treating addiction. And addiction's a tough one to treat. Yes. You know, and for somebody like Jesse, I just, I think to myself, you know, if we can get this regulated and legalized so that, you know, the concern of, of buying this stuff and the reason why I can, can't recommend it presently, because first and foremost, it is illegal. Mm -hmm. So there's that consideration. That's number one. Second of all, uh, you don't necessarily know where you're buying this stuff from. Right. Mm -hmm. And fentanyl is a very real and exceedingly dangerous thing. Yes. And I know friends of friends who have taken MDMA and died because of this. All well-intentioned, yep. right? They wanted the same kind of therapeutic output that I had. Yeah. And unfortunately, their session ended up with them dying. Wow. Yeah. So a cautionary tale right there. Yeah. And this stuff has cool. to be you have to be exceedingly cautious with this. I mean, psilocybin is, you know, that's a mushroom that you're plucking out of the ground. Um, but again, it's illegal. And so we need regulatory environments to come in and tell us what's safe and what's not. Um, and trusted regulatory environments, you know, like we have been, let's face facts, you know, the government paired with uh, big pharma and the mental health industry, kind of a bummer, aren't they? Kind of a letdown. Yes. I mean, when was the last time, if you think about the last time that this industry actually experienced anything transformational, it's been like 50 years yes. in mental health. And, and even that, you know, you could argue, you know, if you're talking about, you know, Valium or Prozac, mm -hmm. you know, you could argue that that wasn't actually, it, was, it was transformational, but the, the side effects and the downstream effects are still unsubstantiated on how negative those effects are. And the other thing, I guess I would yeah. say about, about legalization, you know, I think it's important for people to understand, you know, because a lot, a lot of people that have not been read into this or understand the history of psychedelic medicine. Um, it was it was made illegal in, in large part due to the US government worrying that they were gonna lose control of, uh, of the public during the Vietnam War. And they were worried right. they were gonna have um, 
not enough soldiers to go fight an illegitimate war. It, in, 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 in part, it's, it's nuanced, but that's the story. It has nothing to do with how safe or unsafe it is. And so that shut down decades of research in this area. And only yeah. now um, has, it, has there been a reemergence. And I don't think we're gonna put the genie back uh, in the bottle on this one. And yeah, it's no, I, I certainly hope not. Back to your point about transformational change in mental health care for the last 50 years. The only, here's an anecdotal note that I would share is that I have never had more psychiatrists talk to me about the fact that they're going to spend the next three decades of their life working in psychedelics because it's so transformational. When yeah. I probably two years ago, I don't even know if they've ever heard of the word before. I, it's amazing, isn't it? The speed, when I had uh, my MDMA experience, there was nothing known about MDMA except for that you paired it with speed. And then, you, you know, you go to a club and, and I think, I think they just licked each other's faces, but I don't, I, I never did the rave thing, but I think it was a lot of licking and patting. And then multiple. Um, yeah. And I, if that's the public perspective, I mean, you need the media on your side as well. And uh, the media at oftentimes can be a, a mouthpiece for the government. Mm -hmm. And uh you know, that certainly happened in uh, the 60s. Uh, media was hugely supportive of the utility of psychedelics at the time. Yeah. 60s hit and you had, uh, yeah, individuals saying that this war isn't our war and we weren't meant to fight it. You know, in a generation previous, you had people who were, were vying for a spot to go for World War II and extremely patriotic generation and all of a sudden, that wasn't the case. And so, you know, they cre created the DEA at the time. And then, uh, and then Reagan came in and started his war on drugs. And that was kind of it. I mean, yeah. psilocybin and, uh, and masculine and DMT um, and cannabis, hilariously, but we're all tucked away yeah. uh, and considered dangerous drugs. And, and don't get me wrong, anything can be dangerous. And this yeah. is why I, I, I don't recommend them necessarily because, no. because you need the right kind of social structures in place um, that can only come from a regulated environment. Yeah. And, and so- Meanwhile, you know, since then, things like oxycodone, and benzodiazepines have been fed to people like candy with very oh. little, little um, you know, we're, you're talking with a very cautionary tone around psychedelics and buyer beware and, and all of that. But, you know, you go to any primary care physician up until probably two or three years ago, it's getting a little bit better now, especially with mm -hmm. benzodiazepines. They will yeah. write you a prescription in five minutes. It's amazing, isn't it? Same with SSRIs. They'll look at you in the eyes and they'll go, your eyes look a little bit sad. They'll make you do a checklist. <laughs> your eyes always look sad. <laughs> I know. That's, that's why I always get my script, you know? <laughs> but I went to a, this was three years ago, I went to, uh, to see a doctor just for a checkup. And the doctor at one point asked me, and this is like just this little clinic that I'd never been to before, but. I was having issues with my throat at the time. So I went to get a checkup <laughs> the doctor goes, how are you sleeping? Like, you know, 
my sleep has always suffered, so I'm, I'm not a great sleeper, but uh, I guess Ambien, Ambien will help that. I'm like, no, I don't, no, yeah. don't need Ambien. You're talking about one of the most addictive fucking drugs on it. Yeah, but you, you know what? I'll tell you what. I'm just going to write you a prescription for it, okay? I'm going to write a prescription for it. Get it filled. Just tuck that puppy away in your cabinet and whenever you need it. It's like, well, but yeah. that's so unbelievably irresponsible. Yeah. Well, he, and that happens all the time. You know what? One of the interesting things for me, and maybe not interesting is the right word, but so, and I think this might be a, a United States statistic, but nonetheless, it's probably fairly comparable. So I think it's something like 4% of, so out of all of the, the antidepressant, antipsychotic medications that are written, 4% of them are written by psychiatrists, 96% of them are, are something like that are written by primary care physicians. That's your GP, so yeah, great. Or they spend 10 minutes with you, yeah. undereducated or not educated at all in mental health care, Right. This is a very, very under talked about issue in, in the mental health care system is that we're, we're medicalizing normal, number one. Two, yes. And it's not even a criticism of the physicians because if you have some, if you have a patient coming in under extreme duress or, or distress, um, you can't do anything. Even, even if you were to refer them to a psychiatrist, it's, eight, it's an eight month wait. Yeah. And then, no. and yeah. There's no publicly paid for psychotherapy. And so if you don't have health benefits, you're fucked. Right. So, like you can understand why the default is medication. Like it's, it, yeah. but it doesn't mean that that's a system that's been well-designed for optimal well-being of, of, of our society. I am, I am all for the notion of medicine. I, but I think we've misunderstood medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea, uh, typically, prior to what we now consider modern day psychiatry, you know, the notion used to be that uh, we would try to resolve issues, right? We would try to actually heal certain circumstances. Now, granted, when we're dealing in the realm of psychiatry, we're dealing with something that is vastly more complicated than the body. The brain is an extraordinarily complicated system. And of course we do not understand it, mm -hmm. but what we did and shame on us for doing it was we allowed uh, our, our governments and our certain levels of corporatocracy and, and for-profit pharma to dictate what we should be taking and what's best for us. And the shit that they feed us is fucking Prozac and Oxy. And we, these are the organizations that we trusted. Yes. Like this is the first time, Mark, that within this realm, we're talking about health of the mind. Big pharma should be horrified with this wave that is coming because it's this wave isn't coming from big pharma. Right. For the first time in my life, it's the population that is demanding now a very specific medicine. Mm -hmm. It's not big pharma coming to us and telling us what we need. We're now deciding what we need, you know, and companies like Pfizer should be worried because there is no addictive qualities to psilocybin or, and it's not something that you need on a daily basis.
And for most people, for a lot, well, I don't know about most people, but for a lot of people who are struggling with certain components of mental illness, you know, it is also, it's kind of, like I said, it's kind of a one and done thing, Yeah. you know, and so maybe not one and done, but maybe you do it once or twice a year with a therapist, like gone possibly here gone may be the days where we're not just feeding people pills every day mm -hmm. which most assuredly is incredibly unhealthy yeah well and it was never um intended to be ssris for example were never intended to be something that you took indefinitely for a decade they were uh, and same with oxy right and it, they were intended to be short short yeah. duration yeah um, for a specific period of time and then you got off them and now you know, it's, it's a, it's a, I think it was something like pharmaceutical companies make like $18 billion a year on, uh, uh, on, um, antidepressant medication. And it's, I believe they, it's because they've, um, they've, they've pitched it now as not something that you need for a short duration. It's, you need it all the time. And then people are afraid, understandably so to get off of it because, right. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, do I get off it and it's going to be worse and do I have to go on? And so people are going on again and off again. There's a quote I read just as a sidebar. So Aldous Huxley, who was very much in the psychedelic scene back in the day, yeah. Said, yeah. Um, medical research has made such enormous advances that there are hardly any healthy people left. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. No kidding. Well, that's exactly what we were just talking about. Yeah, and so in many ways, I think I think so, to some degree we have to also get back to first principles, and that psychedelics is no panacea, um, no, and, not, and, and no. nor are medications. But you know, we have when you got back to simple things like your community, your, your mental fitness, your physical fitness, yeah. and then yeah. where necessary, um, medication, right? Medicine, and, and for you, <laughs> medicine, and for you, the MDMA was transformational. Um, for others, SSRI, I'm not discounting those medications either, but... No, no, and nor am I. Sometimes they are required. But the amount of SSRIs and, and similar medications um, that are pushed upon this population is staggering. It's, it's astonishing. And so what if, there was, what if there was a drug that could alleviate at least some of that? Wouldn't that be worthy of investigation? And the answer should fucking be yes. Absolutely. Well, my friend, I think uh, we might have a meeting to go to. So, and I'm I'm worried that uh, on my free Zoom trial that I'm going to get cut off after a period of time, and then that's going <laughs> to be unfortunate. No, I'm I am the cheapest guest you ever. I mean, look at how you treat me. <laughs> we did a Zoom video conference. This is this your first time that you did uh, Zoom, or did you do it with Alan? No, I, I have a much more expensive um, software that I use for different guests, but it doesn't have the it doesn't have the video it doesn't have the video component. It only integrates the audio. So you are Cody, the first guest that I'll post on YouTube in video form. You understand that I have fucking feelings, right? Like that, you can't just come on here use me for my stories. Right. At base level investment. Were, were you the? Um, former department head of psychiatry for Duke University? No, I don't think you were. Okay, so Alan Francis gets the Squadcaster $200 a year subscription service, okay?
well, how much MDMA is Alan doing? Is all I have. <laughs> well, let's let's ask him next time. We'll have a three-part series. Next time we'll ask him. Yeah, That's the subject it. line is going to say, "How much acid has Alan Francis done in his career?" <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, pal. Hey, buddy. Well, that was a good chat, and uh, we might even do part three. Who knows? Well, we'll have to do a part three. Okay. What option do we have? Well, Alan, me, me, you, and Alan Francis. It will be part three. Sounds like a plan. All right, pal. Okay, buddy. Have an awesome afternoon. Thanks for having me. Okay. Talk soon, buddy. You bet. See ya. Well, thanks once again to uh, my good friend, Cody Lakefold, for sharing what is a uh, remarkable journey that he's been on. I don't know about you guys, but could he be the best bourbon salesman of all time if he so chose that professional pathway? Good God. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed the intro music. I loved it so much that I'm going to leave it as an outro here so you guys can jam to like a Rob Lovelace punch to the solar plexus. Stay safe, take care, and enjoy.